Good morning, friends. So today's Revelation Day, and for all of you who forced me into this position, I'm seething with rage. Um, this is where, if we were all together, hopefully you'd be laughing. But I can't tell if you're laughing. So, alas, here we are. I have a couple things that I want to do that are kind of disconnected from that conversation. We'll end with the conversation. Uh, but I want to explore a couple thoughts and offer a couple spaces for us. And then we'll get into what I have planned. And of course, and this is very applicable today, once I get done sharing information, I really do want your questions and comments and thoughts. And I want to have a little bit of conversation based on what you want to hear. Here's the deal with Revelation. We ain't going to cover it all in one sitting. Okay, so I'm going to offer some things. I'm going to need you to bring up specific things that you want to know more about if you want to know more about them. And I'm willing to engage with that conversation. Of course, we need to start with the one and only uh, Wendell Berry, if you know what I mean. So this is a poem called The Peace of Wild Things. And I hope this speaks to you as it speaks to me. When despair grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought grief, I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So I want to begin and if you need a space of prayer and meditation, feel free to just use this. I know it's a little bit strange, like you're in your home or in your own, in your own space. And uh, I'm going to offer for you to stop in your own space and do something that you might already do in your own space. But that's just to be silent and to think and to reflect. And so I'll, just answer the question, what are you grateful for today? We've talked before about how it takes 15 seconds for a negative thought to solidify itself in your brain. It takes 15 minutes for a positive thought. It is so important that you consider gratitude, that gratitude has the capability of moving yourself beyond yourself because whatever you're grateful for, you can trace that back to the divine. And so what are you grateful for today? Maybe it's something simple, grateful for your breath. You're grateful for uh, the rain, maybe. You're grateful for the warmth you possibly had this week. Maybe it's a general. Bob just mentioned it's grateful for life. Like you're alive. Right now, if you're hearing this, 
you're alive. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. But you have life. Your heart's beating. Maybe you're grateful for a relationship. Maybe you're grateful for something beautiful to happen today or, or this week, and that's on your mind. Bring those thoughts of gratitude to the top of your mind. Allow them to be the dominant lens through which you're seeing life in this moment. And then consider what good is happening in your life right now. And here's the deal. Everything happening in your life right now might not be good, but can you focus on the good? Can you focus on the positive that is still happening no matter how much bad junk is going on? There's still something to captivate your gratitude. And when you see that good, does it reveal to you the divine presence that we've been promised is with us? When you think about the smiling faces of your children or grandchildren, when you think about the warmth of someone's presence and the relationships that you have, are you able to see the divine presence in those things? once you've started with gratitude, consider what is the next thing that needs to happen. When you see your life as connected to a transcendent God that is also present with you, it should bring gratitude, but it should also reveal how gratitude might continue and how the goodness that you have experienced can continue to manifest in the world. And so as you sit and you embrace the beginning of a day, what is the next thing that needs to happen for you today? What's the next thing that needs to happen in the world today? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All right, I cannot see most of you, um, but I am going to go here for a few minutes, more than a few, you know me too well, more than a few minutes. And uh, this is, I'm laughing because this is ridiculous. For like three straight weeks, you all were like, do revelation, do revelation. And I have had this, uh, this image in my head, if like, if I'm ever, and I've said this to, to folks before, like if I'm ever gonna do something on Revelation, it's going to be called 
the end where the end is crossed out current times. So this is the end crossed out current times revelation, Dr. Seuss and the tale of two worlds. You got to let me have some fun right now or else I'm going to get exhausted and this isn't going to be fun for everyone. And uh, I hope that some of you are like, I have no clue where this is going. And if that is the case, then I have you right where I want you. So um, I, th I, this is where I really wish you all were here because I'd love to see your faces right now. Um, how many of you are laughing? How many of you are shaking your heads in just frustration of how our Tyler is so weird? Um, I'd love to, I'd love to, to see all of that. So uh, now I'm going to, and you all keep chatting with me and now I'm going <laughs> to, Tracy said, I never voted for revelation. Um, I'm just saying, which Tracy, that actually brings up one of the first points that I'm going to make. And it's that it's not called revelations. It's called revelation. The revelation of John uh, sometimes tagged as the apocalypse of John. Now, most people call it revelations, and that's fine. That is my personal perspective on, on the matter. So uh, let's start. And I have, I have some notes, and so I'm going to, I'm going to be reading a lot. Um, so hopefully that's okay with all of you. And let's get into it. The first thing that we need to talk about before we can uh, understand Revelation is what is prophecy? And so I'm going to offer this definition of prophecy because the biblical, especially the Jewish perspective of prophecy is different than how prophecy is talked about in our modern culture. So prophecy is the act of confronting, exposing, and challenging to change. And if you just think about the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, this makes sense. Uh, we talk about prophecy, or at least our, our pop culture talks about prophecy as predicting, right? We're going to predict this thing. That's kind of true if you look at the prophets, um, but it's more of we're going to confront you all on this and tell you that if you don't change this, this is probably what's going to happen, right? If you don't start doing these things, yeah, Babylon's going to come and, and take over. That's not necessarily a prediction as like telling the future. It's kind of naturally explaining that if you don't change this behavior, if you don't change your identity, this is what's going to happen. Okay, so a, a great example of that prophecy is in the book of Daniel. And I know some of you have uh, been exploring the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is technically a prophetic book. It doesn't do a whole lot of future telling or fortune telling. It does have predictions as because you've done these things, this is what's going to happen. Um, and that, that process of prophecy and thinking in that way uh, comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, which we talked about uh, maybe like six weeks ago with um, judgment and theodicy and uh, judgment as natural consequences. So God doesn't say like, I'm going to punish you. God says, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen. 
Um, so that's prophecy. Um, the other word that is important because the subtitle of Revelation sometimes is um, the Apocalypse of John. And apocalypse is a culturally heightened word. Um, there are a, a plethora of television shows about apocalyptic living. Um, and you've got the doomsdayers and you've got all of that. Um, I want to reformat the word apocalypse for us as unveiling. Apocalypse equals unveiling. It is about seeing what isn't visible and shedding light on things. Okay, so it works in conjunction then with prophecy. So here's what I want to say about this book. And I hope I start playing my hand of why I don't get excited about talking about it. Because our estrangement from the world of the Bible and our estrangement from the Bible itself when we get a book with such strange imagery as Revelation, it forces us to guess. And when we guess, we come up with all sorts of weird interpretations and confident solutions and profitable books about the end of the world. And like an example um, that I've heard discussed is the, the locust imagery in Revelation is people go, oh, that must be helicopters, right? And in and, and doing so, they're trying to make sense of something and they come up with something that ends up completely not fitting with what the text is talking about with the locusts, but they make this assumption and then they go and see, that's what's happening over here. And if they would just read the Bible and understand where the imagery comes from, it would actually make more sense. And people do this with, with the Bible and with theology all of the time, is instead of reading it well, they read something and go, how do we make sense of this? I guess I'll just pull something out of the air and yep, now that's my interpretation. And uh, I don't think all interpretations are valid. I think there are poor ways of reading the text. And Revelation is maybe the best example of how that happens. And so what we need to do is you, you have to place prophecy and apocalypse in the tradition from which it comes. And I was just notified that Seuss is spelled wrong. Uh, for those of you who are also thinking that I spelled Dr. Seuss wrong, I don't. I'm tired. All right. I don't care. Um, anyways, what I was saying, you have to place prophecy and apocalypse in the tradition from which they come. Revelation wants you to connect the writing with what has preceded it in the tradition that it's a part of. So, Jewish tradition is one of a lot of prophecy, prophecy as explained with what's on the screen. Within that, the political history in which prophecy is, occurs, the, the, the large scale of you're talking about nations and peoples and identities and tribes and all of that, that's a part of what's happening with prophecy. And so the affairs of powerful governments, war, the rise and fall of peoples, disaster, famine, those aren't like strange predictions about the end of the world. That's stuff that's really happening. Like now. It, and, and it happens in the modern world as well. But you, you look back at Dan, the book of Daniel, for instance, um, or, or some of the stuff that's talked about in Jeremiah, or even in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and it's like, these are real things. They're wrestling with these real issues that are coming about in 
in their society. And so for us, we need to understand that prophecy is about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what it means for the story's continuation that we're still a part of. Prophecy, therefore, requires an imperative response on our part, not because it's predicting some strange future, but because it's saying, here's the history of the world, here's how it came to be like this, and here's what we need to do about it. I think the apocalyptic unveiling of Revelation is this kind of prophecy for the people who first read it and for us today. That's how we need to frame the book of Revelation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're going, none of that makes sense. I need some sort of cultural metaphor to help me understand what it is you're talking about when you're talking about apocalypse and unveiling and prophecy. So the best example of prophecy um, sort of in our modern setting is, of course, the Lorax. Now I know what you're thinking. Actually, I don't know what you're thinking. I'd be really interested to know, know what you're thinking right now. Uh, oh, this is just a children's book. This is strange. Um, however, when I was first being taught about the biblical tradition of prophecy, my professor actually used this book and, and literally read it to the class as a way to say, this is the same way the prophets functioned. It's, it's confronting how things are with this depiction of how things could be if you continue going on this way and it compels us to interact differently. Okay. So uh, I encourage you all, I really wanted to sit here and read through the whole Lorax instead of doing Revelation uh, to just do, do the Lorax and be like, that's the best thing you need to know about Revelation. But I figured you all would get a little bit disappointed and possibly mad at me, so I decided not to do that. Um, <laughs> Lori said, I knew you would do this. <laughs> you know me too well. Uh, but seriously, um, I, and I don't know if you all are um, familiar with the Lorax. Just on its own, it's a great piece of writing. Um, it also has a, a very deep, profound theological implication that we explored the week after Easter um, with new creation. But it, it's a prophetic book if we understand prophecy in the Bible's way. All right? So I want to leave that there. And, and again, hopefully this is developing a lens on, um, on Revelation. Okay, the, the next thing I want to bring up is uh, we did the Lord's Prayer, and um, hopefully you notice the language of the Lord's Prayer is your kingdom come on earth as it is on heaven. And the idea of the kingdom, I, I would say, is the most important facet of Christianity. Um, it seems to be what Jesus is the most concerned about. It's the, the, it takes up the most space within the Gospels and even within the later New Testament writings. What we have to remember, because the kingdom is important in, in Revelation, and we might not make that connection initially, but we should. We have to remember that the initiative of Jesus is the kingdom of God. And you could also frame that uh, or translate that as the dominion of God or the empire of God or the economy of God. Um, 
dominion is actually the word that the book of Daniel uses. So that's where that phrase comes from, the, the dominion of God that Jesus starts talking about is based right out of the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7 to be exact, if you're wanting to look into that. But we have to understand, kingdom of God, that's political language. And, and I, we don't need to get into, like people say, like, ah, oh, faith and politics shouldn't interact. And um, I think on one hand, that's fine. But everything, just in the same way that everything has an ethical dimension, everything within Christianity has a political dimension to it because it impacts the way things work within the world. And that's political. But there's also another important part of the, uh, so that's important for Revelation. The other part of the kingdom that's important for Revelation is what's called dialectical tension. And I don't expect you to know that phrase or to even remember it because I'm pretty sure you understand what it means. Dialectical tension just means that the kingdom is now on one hand, it's, it's happening, it's unfolding, it's, it's real, and it's also not yet. Okay, so there's a tension between it seems to have started, but it's also not finished. And this is what Advent and Christmas is all about, where we go like, yeah, this thing started, but it's not completely full yet. There's a now and not yet nature, and our life exists between the manifestation of both of those. We exist between the start of it and it's not yet being finished. Revelation is entering into that conversation. So I want to give... Um, some thoughts and details and images. And I went to see if this helps us place what Revelation is about. And what needs to be admitted to is we are not going to walk through the whole book today. Um, I hope to give you concepts that help you walk through the book on your own. And um, maybe we will cover more specifics someday in the future, um, but we're actually not going to really get into the text of Revelation. We're going to talk about the background and the situation of Revelation so that you can engage with that text. So I want to start with this picture. This is in a city called Ephesus. For those of you keeping score at home, the book of Ephesians is also about this city. So Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very important city in the Roman Empire because uh, Ephesus was kind of the bridge between the east. So think ancient Near East, Syria, uh, Persia. It was the bridge between the east and the west, uh, the, the Mediterranean European peninsula that, that we imagine today. So for the Roman Empire, who kind of owned all of that. Um, literally, the Roman Empire stretches from about India to Great Britain during this time. Ephesus kind of sits in the middle of that. And this is actually a picture of um, an, a, an ancient and famous marketplace in Ephesus that was kind of the center of where all this trade came together. Um, I, I also find it really interesting that Rome and, and the West needed to set up trade to the East because the East had all the good stuff and Rome produced very few raw materials um, because they weren't very good at it. 
and uh, they didn't have access to a lot of that. So a lot of the luxuries that, that Rome wanted to maintain its status, they had to actually get from the East. So Ephesus becomes really important. The other dynamic within the market is what's called imperial worship. And in, imperial worship is basically the imperial figures, so the Caesars in this case, are seen as being some form of deity. They, they might not go so far to say, like, they're the equivalent of God, um, but they, they had a divine function to them, okay? Why this is important for this market in Ephesus is that in order to buy and sell in the market, you had to show honor and commitment to the Caesars through imperial worship. And, and one way this would happen, and it took on many forms, was you'd have to take a pinch of incense and, and put it on a thing, and that was your way of honoring and uh, claiming that the Caesar was uh, worthy of your worship. Right? You had to do this in order to buy and sell. The question is, how do you tell if somebody did that correctly? Um, one theory uh, that gets kind of projected is that you would get an ink stain when you did the incense. You'd get some ink, almost like a stamp at a concert, um, and that would go either on your hand um, or your forehead. Real quick, I'm going to break the fourth wall here. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of things where I'm referencing something that actually happens in Revelation. So if you have no context of Revelation, that's fine. Just let those things pass by. Um, if you do know some details about Revelation, I hope you start making some of these connections. Because uh, I, just, I just referenced something that will come up if you, if you read the book. Okay, now, to participate in this was to participate and uh, uh, agree with Rome. And you can see and how, you can see how if you're Jewish or, or if you're a Christian, Christian who has installed themselves, all themselves in Judaism, that should be a bit of a problem, of a problem because you are worshiping or saying another God. God. And so, and so Rome and participating in Rome, even, even being complicit with Rome, was seen as uh, participating in evil. And they were very adamant about, uh, about that, wanting to disconnect themselves from whom Rome was. Uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, and again, Revelation steals a lot of its imagery from the book of Daniel. So I would, I would make a case you cannot understand Revelation without understanding the book of Daniel. Um, but Daniel talks about the same thing, and he calls them beasts. Um, and so you have these foreign Gentile powers that oppressed and dominated and, and subjugated, and those were the beasts, right? God is against that. Um, and this is actually where the son of man language comes from, is the God as the ancient of days brings forth the son of man to counter the beast. Um, now, let's move on from that. Hopefully that all works. Uh, these are the Caesars. All right, and I just want to glance at this quickly. Um, so you have Julius Caesar, comes in around uh, 44 BC, and there was that problem with uh, the Mark guy, and then Julius ended up inventing the salad, and, you know, he was great. No, he wasn't. Julius Caesar was questionable. Then you get Augustus, Caesar Augustus, 
Um, and Caesar Augustus is important because Caesar Augustus kind of sets the, the climate for Israel, for the whole Roman Empire at the time, but specifically within Israel for the time right before Jesus is, is, is born. Um, so Augustus is important to understand, and there's, there's a bunch of details about Augustus, um, and we covered this at Christmas a few years ago. Um, but for example, there's uh, one indication that when uh, people talked about that, when Augustus was born, there was a comet that, that went through, um, kind of like a star, but it was a comet. And there was 12 witnesses to this comment. And people said, that is Julius Caesar um, ascending to the right hand of the gods. And therefore, Julius was divine, which then makes Augustus divine and makes Augustus, get this, a son of God. Interesting. And people began talking about Caesar Augustus as if uh, Augustus was God incarnate meant to come and bring universal peace. There's a poet named Virgil, who, who if, you, if you know ancient classical history, you, you know about Virgil. But at one point, Virgil makes this prediction using the stars and astrology that a cataclysmic event would happen. The response of Augustus is to go, since I am the mediator of the heavens and the earth, uh, based on this cataclysmic event, I am going to initiate a 12-day celebration of my birth. Very interesting. Um, and, and Augustus had coins printed that said uh, that he is the one who brings salvation. Right? You, you start picking up, there's, there's a lot of crossover here. All right, so then you get Tiberius, uh, Caligula, who you know, made some mistakes in the gladiator arena. Claudius, uh, Nero, um, interesting, interesting fact about Nero is that if you take Nero's name in Hebrew, every Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent. And if you take Nero's name, who would have been the Caesar around the time that either Revelation is being written or the, uh, the events of the author in his exile are happening, um, Nero's name comes out to the numerical equivalent of 666. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess we don't have to guess about what that means anymore. Um, then you had, and if I start getting, uh, what's the word? Grouchy cynical. or cynical or snarky. <laughs> Forgive me but it's probably going to happen. Um, then you get Vespian, Titus, Domitian, uh, Trajan, Hadrian, um, and it keeps on going. Eventually you get Constantine, who is the biggest mistake that the church has ever coincided with. In my opinion, that is not a fact. That is my opinion. Um, but I want to focus on this guy. This is Domitian. Domitian in real life actually did have legs, uh, despite what the sculpture portrays. Um, and he also had normal eyes. Again, this is a sculpture. It's, it's art. All right. um, and, and a lot of this comes from a scholar named Ethelbert Stauffer, but uh, John Dominic Carson is also somebody who writes about this. There's N.T. Wright writes a lot about that. There's a lot of different voices who, who do this. And I want to bring up some possible connections um, that P 
people have, you know, we don't know everything about Domitian and, and we don't have a lot of um, first person evidence for some of this stuff, but we, we do have a good enough indication of Domitian's reputation that some of these things do make sense, um, even if they are just kind of passed on through history. Uh, so here, let's start with this. Supposedly, Domitian required his wife to refer to him as my Lord and my God. So you like him already. Huh? Um, we do have letters from Domitian, and the way that he would, he would sign his letters is from our Lord and our God, Domitian, who commands you. All right, so you get a feel for what he's like. Uh, Domitian or some of Domitian's followers did proclaim that Domitian was God on earth who brought peace and salvation, and he was to be worshipped. And there's some evidence that he had a choir of 24 singers that followed him around, get this, saying, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. Uh, Domitian was known for being very violent, uh, very similar to King Herod um, in, in Israel. Uh, but murder and genocide are common stories that we get about him. My favorite, my favorite one, this is, this is, this is cruel. Um, he had all of his top leaders and generals and officials at a banquet. And at the banquet, when that person sat down at their spot in front of them, was their tombstone. Like, this is how Domitian's mind worked. Like, I'm going to put your tombstone in front of you to remind you that if you cross me, that's how you're going to end up. He was creative. I'll give him that. Um, let's look at another picture of Domitian, the sculpture. Um, you'll notice that in this, he's holding a scroll. And this is common of the Caesars. The idea is that the scroll, the Caesar scroll was... Uh, key, the key to ruling as a Caesar. It had writing on both sides of all of the divine names of a Caesar. And um, with this scroll, that's kind of how power was passed on. And only the Caesar could open the scroll. Um, and I hope you're, you're putting together, I am only giving you very specific references to Domitian and the Caesars that come directly out of the book of Revelation. All right. Um, Another important part of Domitian was he had what was called the Domitian Games. It was kind of like a version of the Olympics. The Domitian Games would start with Domitian addressing the crowd in different provinces and leaders within the crowd. And he would say, to this leader in this province, I have this for you. And he would say some sort of good thing that they've done. And then he would say, and I have this against you. And kind of criticize them and say, you need to, you need to fix this. Um, the Domitian games also have this massive, massive worship service um, for Domitian, where there was priests who wore white and kind of created this circle of, of worship towards Domitian. This one's a little bit more speculative, but there is some indication that one of the major parts of the Domitian games was there was a horse race with four different colored horses. Just gets, it just keeps getting better. Um, and then uh, supposedly there was a person, after all the gladiators fought and killed each other, there was an indication that um, there was a person who would come 
and clean up the bodies and the person would do so while wearing a mask and the mask was Hades or uh, death. Okay, so just remember all of that because it'll be helpful if you read Revelation. Uh, I'll show you another image. This is a rendering of, the, uh, of a temple at Ephesus that Domitian had built. And uh, one thing that's important about this temple is it had 24 arches or sections. And those apparently represented uh, the, the 24 common deities within their pantheon. Uh, but on top of all that was this statue. And, and in real life, this is thought to have measured about 27 feet. So Domitian, on, on top of the gods, Domitian builds a 27-foot statue of himself. And uh, what's important about the placement of the statue is if you were coming in from the sea to this Ephesus, which is the central market in the whole empire, you would see the statue sitting there. If you were coming by land, you'd also see the statue. Um, there's also some consideration that people referred to Domitian as the beast of land and the beast of the sea. So I'll just leave that there. Um, now, Domitian supposedly thought Christians were a bit of a problem. Uh, not because they were uh, causing a lot of damage or anything. Christians and the Jewish people as well were a problem because the way the empire worked was that you could, they would incorporate whatever religion somebody had and just say, we'll just add that to our pantheon. And so they come across the Christians and the Jews and they say, oh, here's another God that we can add to our pantheon. And they say, no, 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 no. Our God doesn't get added to your pantheon. Our God's the only one. That's a problem especially if Domitian kind of demands this sort of worship. And so there's some stories about how Domitian in Ephesus, where people are supposed to be doing the incense thing, actually comes with his choir of 24 singers and enters the market and finds all of the people who have refused to worship him and kills them on the spot. Many of them would have been Christians or Jews. And so I want you to imagine what it would be like to live in the empire during this time, right? These Caesars are supposed to be bringing universal peace and reigning as God. Problem, the Caesars die. And you are part of a thing that says our God didn't die. And in fact, we're actually bringing the true universal peace and the true reign. And what happens to you if, if let's say that you're, you're a leather worker and you recently have entered the Jesus movement and you consider yourself a part of this and you also have four kids that you need to feed and you need to go to the market to trade your leather. What do you do? Like you, you're part of this absolute revolution compared to Rome and Domitian. But what do you do? Can, can you see how difficult this would be living in this setting during this time? So I hope Revelation makes a bit more sense now. Revelation is written by a pastor named John. John was exiled to an island called Patmos. While he's in exile, he writes letters to his churches. And that becomes the book of Revelation. So 
So do you see what's going on here? Did John in his exile sit there and go like, you know what, you know, it'd be really good if we just, uh, we just uh, gave, gave modern American Christians a bunch of uh, a good content to write a nice fictional book series about the end times. Yeah, we should really, I should write these letters to these churches so that they can have that. No, what, what is John doing? He's writing prophecy based on the Jewish tradition of prophecy to his people while he's in exile saying this is what's going on and this is the story that we are going to tell in response to this. I think what's happening in Revelation is John is subversively describing in line with Israel's prophets how this anti-God empire came to be and how it is in contrast to God's kingdom and dominion and empire. And, and by the way, I use the phrase anti-God intentionally because if you take that a step further, anti-God, well, you could say that's a bit like anti-Christ. And now we don't have to try to come up with what that name means. It means literally what it says, anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-God's kingdom, anti-God's world. Okay, now I'm starting to get frustrated. Okay, and within Revelation... What John does is he depicts that as Jesus conquered death, okay, so the Easter narrative is important. As Jesus conquered death, he initiated a revolution of the world that would lead to a new world order via a new creation. And all that counters God, Rome and Nero and Domitian, would be conquered and the world would be restored. That's what the story of Revelation is about. It's not about a timeline of events for the end times. This is about the world we live in and how it stands in opposition to the world as it should be. And how we, too, are a part of that same story. Just as the people John wrote to were in this unveiling prophetic letter. And so the, the confrontation of Revelation, if you're, if you're receiving this letter from your pastor who's exiled at Patmos, is... Is it better to live for God than Domitian? The question of Revelation is who or what rules the world? And if you're going to be a part of this story, whatever you do, do not bow down. That's what I think is going on here. Um, now, consider this. Some people say that uh, in the, around the second century, about 90% of Ephesus was a part of the church and took on the name Christian um, or follower of Jesus. Which is fascinating to consider because this image that's still on your screen, that's in Ephesus and at 90%, that would be, that'd be quite, uh, quite remarkable. And I, I like to think of Revelation in the sense of, because Ephesus is one of the churches written to in, in Revelation chapter two, um, they're, they're specifically addressed. And I like to consider this as like, if, if those, second century Ephesians could speak to us today about this book, what would they say? Like, would they say, hey, you should have someone write a bunch of weird novels that completely allegorizes the images with no regard to the Jewish tradition of the world of the first century so that they can use them to fit their agenda? No, I don't think they'd say that. Or, or would they say, hey, use this book to find ways to compare every chaotic thing as a prediction of revelation 
while ignoring what was written, that it was written about their current events. Like, can we still learn from Revelation? Absolutely. Absolutely, sure. But enough, enough of this terrible use of the Bible. Just because it sounds similar and you can make the image fit your context and your fixation on it doesn't mean that's what it is about. Like if I hear one more use of revelation taken out of context to show that what's happening right now was predicted all the way in the first century and therefore this is the end of the world, I'm going to lose my mind. Because, not only because it's, it's bad scholarship, but also because it's, uh, it's not faithful to what the text is actually about. And we end up missing the point. Rather, spin this on its head. If those second century Ephesians could talk to us, they'd probably say like, hey, you all can stop complaining now. Like think of the things that we complain about. We have no idea what, what people in our tradition went through in their experience within the Roman Empire. Like we talk about Christians being persecuted today. No, 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 no. At least not in our culture. Uh, in, in some places in the world, especially in third world nations, you absolutely give, give credence to that. But imagine living in Ephesus when all this is happening, right? Or I think they would even go farther and they would give us insights of, of like, hey, take this story of Revelation because we tried to put a dent in the machine, but we didn't win. So keep making dents because we need all the dents we can get. Like, okay, now we're starting to get into what Revelation is about. And, and I think they would ask us, uh, I, I think they would ask us this question. What story are you going to be a part of? What story are you going to be a part of? Because here's the deal. We like to read the Bible from the perspective of the good team, right? We read Exodus and we go, we're like the Israelites. Um, or or, or we, read, uh, we read about Paul writing in the New Testament and, and we go, yeah, like, we're, we're like Israel. We're like the, the first Christians. Here's the deal. If we're honest, we are more like Pharaoh in Egypt and we're more like the people living in the Roman Empire. We are complicit in the very world that Revelation is confronting. And, and I'm not giving value on how we are complicit yet. I think that's a discussion that needs to happen. But Revelation is confronting that very kind of world in which we kind of participate in. And, and think about how the book of Exodus frames it. Uh, there's, you're given a picture of Pharaoh and you're given a picture of God and the book of Exodus basically says, Who, which one are you going to serve? Because you have to choose one because these are mutually exclusive. They can't sit by, side by side. So who are you going to serve? And, and here's the deal. As somebody who is vastly benefiting from our culture and our world, okay, I'm sitting here with a microphone on a MacBook in a beautiful building. We might not want God to conquer all of this. If we think about it, we might not want to because we have something to lose. And if you look at Revelation chapter 18, that's actually what Revelation 18 is about. It's, it shows us the, the politicians and the merchants and the corporations and the citizens who all live in comfort. When this happens, when God starts overcoming everything, they weep. Why do they weep? 
because they had something to lose in a world that they benefited from, which was at the expense of other human beings and at the expense of creation. And it was counter to God, but we might like that because it's quite comfortable for us. And if the Revelation story actually was true and it happened in our midst, how many of us would weep because, man, we just lost a lot of the things that we actually kind of liked? So we have to be careful of getting too excited about Revelation because good news, which I would say Revelation is good news, good news might actually be bad news for some people. And if we're going to get excited about Revelation, I think it should be because it portrays how Domitian isn't it. Domitian doesn't win. Rome doesn't win. The meek do. This is, this is a story, to put it this way, this is a story about how God is going to conquer the way things are. And he's going to turn it upside down and make all things good again. And for us, we need to hear, we need to keep conquering. We need to keep turning the world right side up. We, we need to keep moving God's world in, as, as the Lord's Prayer says, God's kingdom on earth. That's what Revelation is about. But if we miss that message, we will keep on going in this normal that is actually insane. And we might find ourselves weeping when this messed up destructive world we've created is overturned. We have to, ask, we have to confront ourselves when we read Revelation. Are we actually in the way of what God is trying to do in the world? Which story are we going to tell? Uh, right? It's, it's, it's a tale of two worlds and you have to pick one. In the midst of the world as it is, wh- which way are we going to take this? And so I'd, I'd sum up uh, Revelation this way. The story of Revelation is inviting us to continue what they were so adamant about. And so for you, which story will you tell? All right. Thank God that's over. All right. Um, let me bring up the chat here to see if we got anything. Okay. Um, what questions, thoughts, concerns about my mental health, um, any of that do you all have? Okay. Well, uh, should we do a little grace and peace and just uh, everybody go play in the rain? Or come on, you don't have anything to do today, do you? Questions or thoughts? Uh, Kelsey, is that a question? She said, is it normal to be lost because I was slash am, implying it's a present progressive <laughs> tense. Currently were, uh, but no, still am. It's, it's uh, continually progressing. Um, 
I was hoping somebody would bring this up. Amanda just said, as someone who grew up surrounded by the Left Behind series and movies, I really appreciated this. All right, so first to Kelsey, um, I would say if you aren't confused, uh, if you aren't a little bit lost, uh, then I would be concerned. Because the strangeness uh, and the complexity of all the things happening within this is really difficult. And, if, and, and this is what I would say, and I, and I feel this way, when people um, depict Revelation to me in a very simple way, I'm, I'm immediately skeptical because it's not simple. It's very, very difficult and complex and confusing. And so, yes, I think it's appropriate to be lost as long as you continue to try to unpack the pieces, All right? Um, and then for Amanda, is Amanda on here? Amanda, do you have your video on or no? No, okay. Um, I never actually read or watched any of the Left Behind stuff. Um, I was not subjugated to its content. Vanessa was, and so I have heard about them from Vanessa. Um, and I understand the premise of them. And um, it makes, I, I'll be a little bit vulgar, it makes me want to vomit. Um, and not just because of the content or the fact that it looks like it's a B-movie. Um, it, it, that is the kind of thing that so disrupts me about how the Bible is, is so misused and misunderstood and done so with such confidence. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I, I hope we take really seriously here is I expect, if you're a part of the farmhouse, I expect you to engage holistically with the text. I expect us to know it, I expect, expect us to embody it, and I expect us to be able to wrestle with very complex things because we take the book seriously. Um, and and I, I would maybe criticize a lot of that end time rhetoric is you're not taking, you are not taking the Bible seriously. You are, if, if you claim for this to be God's word and you're doing that with it, you've just neglected 95% of God's word. Okay, so let's change the subject because, uh, okay, Amy has something. We'll turn now to Amy. Well, only just that I'm kind of surprised that you say you don't like to do books like Revelation because to me the idea of confronting this actually seems to be something that you would lean into. That, and I mean, you know, I certainly feel that way, that it's like part of what we do here is confronting this kind of thing and saying, let's take a look at this in a better way that we can learn it in ways that would be more helpful. Mm. And it just seems like more to me, your personality would be to say, yeah, no, we're not going to stand for this. Let's hear it in a better way. So I'm a little surprised to hear you say you didn't want to do revelation. But so I, I, I think we do that a lot where we go, yeah. here's this thing. Let's really understand what's going on yeah, with absolutely. this thing. Maybe it has been misused or misinterpreted. The reason that I don't like Revelation is because there's such confidence behind what it is actually about. Sure, and you've got to kick that confidence in the yeah, and the debt in the confidence. I, and, and I guess my experience with it is a lot of people are willing to hear some of the things that I just said mm -hmm. and still be like, yeah, nope, uh, still well, going with the other thing. Yeah, it's, but you uh, can't help that, yeah. But the, the real issue for me with talking about Revelation is that people seem to have already 
they're so used to the images and the way that they've been interpreted mm -hmm. that they have a hard time seeing past those. So, you know, like I brought up 666, right? Mm -hmm. That's become such a pop culture phenomenon that it's hard for people to actually go, like, maybe <laughs> it has a very rational explanation. Um, uh, what's another, uh, another one for that, too? Or a good example would be, like, using the book of Daniel to explain what's going on with the dragons and the beasts and, um, and all of that. It's like, it's right there in the text. Like, all you got to do is read Daniel, and it makes sense. But people have taken on such this vivid, almost medieval imagery to it. And so I just go, I'm just not even touching it. I, I just don't even want well, to. Well, it's, it's theology that comes from the media, not from the text at all. I mean, we see movies, and it's been taken and done on all these, like you said, not just left behind, but I'm thinking of, like, Damien, the Omen movie. And she, you know, the little boy has the six success on his skull. and Just things like that that, that yeah. you know, we've taken and taken these imageries and, and turned them into media stories and, yeah. and you know even Christmas all those things we do this uh, oh yeah yeah and Christmas is probably a good example of one that I uh, I, I enjoy confronting mm -hmm. and enjoy uh, interacting with. Yeah. okay other questions um, and this is where if uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I just looked at the screens and saw several people <laughs> shake their heads at the same time, because Tracy. they wrote what, <laughs> read what Tracy York wrote. <laughs> um, this is also where if you have questions about a specific text that you want to bring up, I'm, I'm fine with diving into that. Um, but yeah, if you don't have a 24-person choir following you around, you're not Caesaring. Absolutely. Uh, Um, but, but Tracy, Domitian having a 24 person choir is really important if you read Revelation 4, right? Or maybe that's, yeah, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Come on, somebody ask a question. Do you want to ask them? No. Yeah, I did. Dear, the system update, it's not acting the way it acted before. So. Anybody? Nope. Ah, we got one. Who was the first person, people who started the left behind thought? I don't know. It's a long time ago. I uh, remember from when I was little. Uh, no, I think it goes even further than that. Because there's, there's a um, medieval art. I know that there are, there are woodblock carvings, which means that would be right around when the printing press started. That's when that art form was, was common. There are wood block, block carvings that depict some of this. So, um, I don't know that it was Dante. Da Dante is where you get a lot of heaven and hell stuff that's popular today. Um, but maybe, I, I honestly don't know, but I know that it goes back at least a few centuries. Um, it became really common in the Second Great Awakening. Um, 
that that's where you start seeing it referenced a lot. And then um, evangelicalism just like took right to it when they could. And, you know, what's that, that song? I wish we all were ready. Uh, I wish we all were ready. That's a great way to scare children, I guess, to get them to believe and behave the way you want them to. That's about all that I'd give credence to there. Uh, the Second Great Awakening was a sort of religious revival that <clears throat> was sort of countering the, uh, the Enlightenment and was very fanatical and, um, what's that, e emotive in a sense. Um, and that, that kind of was a big move in America where America started taking on this, uh, this, this oh, what's, what's the right word? Charismatic religious vibe. Didn't John Wesley kind of confront that? Thing? Yeah, uh, John Wesley was, was very opposed to that kind of religious experience. Um, you started to get that more individual salvation kind of idea. Right. Right, that, that's, that's where a lot of that stuff starts taking off as far as a, a, dominant, uh, a dominant theology. Okay, is there such thing of left behind versus choosing to stay behind? <laughs> yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses think yeah. that. Yeah, uh, and I would say the book of Revelation actually says that. Um, um, Revelation, if you pay attention, so if, if Revelation is going... God confronts, Jesus conquers, God's continuing to conquer, and a, a new world is going to make, be made, then the story ends with what? In Revelation 21 and 22, that God takes up residence on earth, and the earth finally does have the fullness of God's dominion amongst it. And that's what we talk about with new creation. And so um, I've, I've used this image before, but there's a joke about what's called dispensationalism, which is the idea that we all are going to like float up into some stratus up there, which is heaven. Although we've, you know, we've, NASA has showed us that there's nothing right there. Um, but so like all of these people are going to be floating up and God's going to be coming down because God's taking up residence on earth and they're going to pass each other. They're going to be like, Oh, wait, wait a second, are we going to the wrong thing? And it's like, maybe, Kelsey, maybe you should write a, a book series called um, uh, Staying Behind. <laughs> you realize there are people who don't believe in NASA. What? There are people who don't believe in NASA. They don't think we've actually Oh, yeah, there's, it. yeah, the, right. Um, it is a conspiracy theory. And those are, um, you know. I always wonder, what those are having in astronomy class do they tell you that when you're studying to become an astronaut or, you know, something, they're like, oh, by the way. Um, <laughs> But, but I, I, that has to be an important part of, of, of Christian theology is that if the point is for um, God's kingdom to come on earth, we have to understand that that's where the story is going. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about creation and resurrection um, and the, the renewal of creation in that uh, that should dictate how we live now. And specifically in the context of Revelation, that means anything that is opposed to that restoration, we're opposed to. Which I can guarantee you that all of us sitting in the Zoom call are not doing 
And if that doesn't define us now, we need to continue working on ourselves so that it does define us because that's where God is calling us into. Um, let me go back to uh, William says, it sounds like what his history teacher said. We study history and, and therefore we study the Bible. So we learn what not to do. Um, and I think the study of church history, if anybody's interested in the study of church history is exactly that. It's going, there's good things in church history, but a lot of it's going like, all right, let's not make that mistake again. And let's not make that mistake again. And let's try to do better this time around. Um, Amanda said, I was just thinking how important it is to also study Judaism and ancient history to really understand the Bible. Um, Amanda, if you're just thinking that, you haven't been paying attention to me for the past year. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. No, seriously, that's like, a, that's the thing. It should be, a man, be mandatory at every Bible college today. <laughs> You're funny. Instead, it is taught how to keep them scared so that they will give you money. That's, come on, that's a little bit of a jab, uh, a generalization maybe. How and why do people still gravitate towards these totally taken out of context theories today? Haven't people evolved past that? No, no, no. I, I, I think it's actually very easy to see why they gravitate towards it. It's the same reason why, and I'm not going to take a stance on uh, Corona pandemic, uh, whatever. Um, but it's the same thing that happens with conspiracy theories. It's easier, right? If I can give you a very simple, uh, solvable solution to whatever problem this is, we like that. We, it's, it's what we talked about with conflict of that's the weak love, right? That's the weak approach, not entering into it. Um, and so people still gravitate towards these taken out of context theories because they don't care about the context in the first part, right? And, and this is why, uh, so you remember Martin Luther, after making the Bible available with the Gutenberg printing press, eventually said, I regret that. Why? Because is it a good idea, a, a good ideal? that everyone has access to the text. Absolutely. That's beautiful. It's also incredibly dangerous. And this is why John Wesley said, you don't just study the Bible, study the Bible with each other. You have to do it in community because you have to have accountability because let, let's be real. I'm going to pick on Kelsey for a second, right? Kelsey doesn't have a huge Bible background. If I were to just hand her a text from let's not even use revelation, right? It's something from Paul and go make sense of this. She, she might have great ideas, which often actually she does. She's able to see things that some of you who have grown up with the Bible can't, but she also doesn't have that rootedness that helps make sense of things that the authors of those texts assume you know. And so, yeah, it's helpful to have somebody going like, oh, wait, 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 pay attention to that. That's where this detail comes from. Um, the, the story of Jesus's baptism is an amazing example of that. People have been arguing about what's going on with Jesus's baptism for centuries. If you would read the book of Genesis, you know exactly what is going on in Jesus's baptism. If you don't read the book of Genesis, then yeah, you got to start making stuff up. 
I, I think it makes sense that people. I think there's more to it than that too. I think it creates that us and them thinking that people like oh, to the have internalization because, yeah, it. because then they can say, well, we know, you know, we know the inside track, we know the story. So we're going to separate ourselves from out from these other people who are not going to heaven, whatever. And, yeah. uh, you know, and that creates that whole dynamic, which again, is very comforting and, and good to do that you can become part of a special group that supposedly has knowledge that other people don't. Right. Amanda said, I think a lot of Christians, including myself at times, expect the Bible or Christianity to fix our lives. It's about what this belief of Jesus will do for me, not what I'm responsible for. You're like this close to quoting JFK, but um, here's, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Um, he uses this image of God's grace should ruin you, not fix you should ruin you. You will become scum of the earth, he says. Why? It's because you're now participating in something that will not be easy. It's difficult. When we try to make, and, and I would actually frame it uh, with a little more nuance, Amanda, that Christianity is both easier and harder than we give it credit for. It is easier because it is available and accessible and built into the fabric of the world. Like God, I believe God is actively doing this and, and engaging in this with us. It's harder because it's demanding. Um, if you want to read a very popular book um, or, or a concept is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Cheap Grace. Um, and the book is called The Cost of Discipleship. And he makes that claim pretty well. And I think he has some authority um, in that he was writing and during the rise of Nazism in Germany and eventually was killed by the Nazis. So I think he has a little bit of, of, of credit in, in saying there's a cost to discipleship. Right. All right. Any, uh, any, any other questions? Long time sinner, first time caller. That is, <laughs> that is the most amazing opening I've ever seen. Um, so what about the cyclical nature of history and the redundant and or multiple fulfillments of biblical prophecies? I'm thinking about that in light of the passage that mentioned uh, scoffers saying everything goes on like it always has and such. Um, which I don't know if you're entering uh, specifically into um, the cyclical nature within the biblical narrative, or if you're talking about history in general, um, like history in general, yeah, I think I think we see that, and a lot of historians make that point. But the the biblical narrative actually does that same thing, where uh, so like the book of Judges is an example in within just itself, where it goes like we're gonna uh, God's going to raise up a leader and then that leader is going to liberate Israel and fix the problem. And then they're going to cause problems and then they're going to go back into uh, being on the bottom again. And then God's going to raise up a leader and then it just keeps repeating. Um, but if you take what happened in uh, Exodus with Egypt, the later exiles with Assyria and Babylon, um, and then eventually with the Maccabees in Greece and then Rome within uh, the, the second temple period and where, where the new Testament's written, they're kind of portrayed as the same thing. It's just a different kind of Egypt and Israel continues to uh, make decisions that God has said, 
God has, you could say, prophesied that, hey, if you choose this, this is what's going to happen, so don't do that. And then they do, and then a prophet comes along and says, y'all need to fix this, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen, and then they don't, and then it just keeps on going and keeps on going. And the hope is that the, the cyclical nature slows down enough to where that cycle is not going to happen anymore. And this is where a lot of Christian theology talks about how the intervention, or they'll, they'll call it the imminence of God, is important because God has to finally conquer these problems that keep this cycle happening. And again, and I think you can fit that into Revelation. Is it's, it's the depiction of God will conquer this, right? Um, so I don't know if that, if that speaks to, to that at all. Um, well, maybe one more, one more question or thought. I don't think anybody else has talked. People have chatted, but nobody has talked. It's easier to write. It is? Yeah, than to see uh, I was trying to criticize them, and then you came to their side. Not <laughs> yeah, fair. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> People are clapping for you, giving you a thumbs up. <laughs> Whatever. Any last thoughts? If Sean is saying something, you can't hear her. By multiple, butch, butch clarifying here, by multiple, I also meant the foreshadowing of them in Christ, the foreshadowing of fulfillment. Is that what you mean, Butch? I'm not sure I understand. Okay. Yeah, and there's a lot of language even that the Apostle Paul uses to, you know, because you can, is Jesus a prophet? Is Jesus a priest? Is Jesus a Passover lamb? Um, all of these images are used for Jesus, I think, with that foreshadowing in mind. Um, and I don't know, Butch, if, if you were, um, if you had listened to any of our Easter conversation, but Easter is interesting because it only begins something. So Easter is about Jesus overcoming and conquering death. But the Christian tradition also paints that as a process in which Jesus is still conquering. And I think that's why revelation becomes important within Christian theology is how does, how does this story with God and Jesus, how does it actually get finished? You know, And I, and even within that, I think the uh, uh, the understanding of the body of Christ being the people through that through that spirit is is an interesting image that Christians uh, started utilizing in this context. Not that either of them, any of them, will ever read their Trisha, are you are you asking a question of clarification? Tracy said this was less painful than I expected. Well, then I failed. I'm disappointed in myself. If it wasn't painful for you, great. It was painful for me. Um, I, I would, my, my last challenge is 
<laughs> what she said, I think she. <laughs> I'll let you two siblings duke that out. Um, my challenge would be to, I, I hope that I've given at least some notion of background to the book that keeps you from being able to interact with it in the way that it's popularly done. But from here, what you have to do is take that background and start reading and go, okay, so what would be happening here? Um, how do we deal with this? And, and like going back into Daniel 7 and going like, how is Revelation using Daniel 7? Um, you have to read it. Uh, and for those of you going for your discipleship, listen, I, I'd be happy to do that with you more. Um, generally, if you have something on a text, anybody who wants to email me about it, that's fine. I can't promise that I'll get to it. Uh, but you got to start engaging with this in a different kind, a different kind of way, um, in a way that's true to the text itself. Um, all right. Peace, love, and revelation be with you all. Uh, I don't know what we're doing next week. I'll figure it out. Um, and then we'll see you then. Bye, everybody.